Hello, Mark. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. We'll just wait for Chris to join us. All right. Lovely. Um, he should be with us shortly. Thank you so much for joining us again, Mark. That's we okay. We really appreciated the insights you gave us on the last podcast. Yeah. And uh, the experience of the insurance broker and what role you play. So for anyone who hasn't listened to our previous podcast, it's a really interesting view of the, the role the insurance broker plays um, in the whole work cover scenario. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining as usual. That's, that's all right. Thank you, guys. Welcome, Mark. Hi, how you been? Good. How are you, Chris? I'm on top of the world, mate. On top of the world. I'm glad you are. <laughs> Nothing upsets Chris too much. No, no. So have I missed anything so far? Sorry I was late, everyone. It's just, you know, technical issues. No, no, no. Just the introduction and thanking everyone, um, thanking Mark and also reminding everyone of our previous podcast. That was so exciting to learn about the role of the insurance broker in the whole work of a um, scenario. So tonight, what I'd really like to speak to Mark about is flipping the coin on the other side and what a worker might experience in a work cover claim. Nice. That would be interesting discussion. I should hope so. Yeah. So maybe we kick it off with a scenario of what to expect with a minor injury. And then a medium injury and a major injury. So perhaps you can sort of run us through what a minor claim might look like and what the claimant can expect. Yep. Okay. So a minor a minor claim is generally someone who has less than ten days off work and less than seven hundred and seventy one dollars of medical expenses. Now they call it minor because that's the employer excess, but as we know for a worker Every accident's a major claim to them. Yes. Um, and it's important through all the claims, whether it's minor, major, that communication flow between worker and employer continues throughout this. So, <coughs> pardon me. Um, let's say you have, I don't know, a medium kind of injury where you might, say, experience the amputation of a fingertip through a guillotining accident or a, um, a significant burn from welding. So while they would not probably be considered major, they'd be pretty significant to the person. Oh, yeah. And, and like I said, like my opening line was, every injury is significant to a person. Um, and it's really important that we, um, as the employer or as the colleague, really get around that worker because people will react different to different things. So um, categorising claims is a minor standard and um, for me is irrelevant. It's an injury that's happened and how do we help that worker get back to work and back to life? Now, with the claims that are less... Um, that, that need treatment and then back to work, yes, that's great. Um, they're the, the easier claims to manage. Um, the claims where they sustain time lost is where they get a bit more tricky and a bit more complex. And, and things that you need to 
consider is, you know, the worker, uh, that person's health, um, the relationship between the worker and employer is so, so critical, even prior to injury. So if you had a small workplace, say yeah. 10 or less, yeah. um, the impact on your premium would be pretty hefty. But, and we realised last time that the role you can help to assist those. So from a worker's perspective, obviously they're dealing with, at that point in time, a fairly junior experienced claims officer. Yes. For the first 13 weeks from memory. Yes. After which it tips over into a moderate claim. Yeah. So someone a little bit more experienced as a claims manager than probably a senior claims manager as time goes on. Yeah, they've probably changed the structure a little bit in the sense that once a claim is lodged to the insurer, it goes to an assessing team or an eligibility officer, as they're called now. They'll assess the claim and they will transition that claim directly to a high-risk claims manager if time lost um, continues. Um, but for the worker, it's that, you know, that sense that could take some time, but the time the claim gets lodged to the employer, to the insurer, gets assessed, goes up, it could be two weeks before they hear from the agent. Now, mm. that's quite a lot of time when you're injured, not knowing how to navigate through the system and stuck. Um, so it's really important that um, the workers understand what the process is early so they know what their expectation is on them and, two, what their expectation is from their employer. So does the employer have an obligation to say those two weeks that it takes to assess eligibility to continue paying your wages? No, the employer needs to wait for the worker, for the claim to be accepted. Now, a claim... Generally, what will happen is a call will be made within 48 hours from the insurer to mm-hmm. say that the claim is going to be either accepted or investigated. If the claim's investigated, the agent has up to 28 days to accept or reject that claim. Now, in the interim, you can um, pay the injured worker leave if they have any, so whether that's sick leave or annual leave. And should the claim be accepted at a later stage, then you recredit that leave. But again, before you do that, you want to be speaking to your employee about that to make sure they agree to that. So, Chris, have you got any questions so far? Well, no, I'm just like sitting back and listening. That sounds like uh, I think if you're under the 10 number of employees and you want to keep a good employee, you would just probably keep paying them and waiting until it comes out because as a small business, you would be... You're going to be losing, if, if someone's injured, i.e. you lose the injury, but then you're probably going to lose that value of that individual if you go, no, you're not going to have any money for that certain time. So it sounds like there's a little bit of a, a gap there where the employee is actually um, self-funding himself through this whole thing. Would that be correct? Yeah. The, the, the other option there is is to go to Centrelink um, if there's no leave entitlements left. So let's, let's talk about a casual worker who yeah. has no leave entitlements. 
Yeah. They can go to Centrelink whilst their claim is being assessed. Now, the biggest problem in all this is neither the employer or the employee um, may understand what the rules are. All right? So oh, yeah. the, the, well, the problem I that think... I find with the smaller type of employers <clears throat> is work cover is just a headache. They don't know the rules just as much as the worker. So the advice to the worker isn't getting through, which makes makes the claim challenging and makes the process very challenging. You're right. And small, even medium-type employers quite often don't have the robustness in their system due to infrequency of claims yeah. um, to actually manage a claim effectively. So that immediately brings about almost a breakdown of the relationships. Well, can I, can I ask you something, Max? Do you get many people say, or like small companies, because surely there's got to be a, a cost benefit here in the sense that maybe in a small business, if the person just paid the person's whatever the injury was and the doctor's bills and everything like that, that would probably be less hassle and less concern, wouldn't it? It might be out of pocket or they... Surely they're not going to be out of pocket any more or any less. Would they? Is that an option in that sort of case? Or well, the, to, get, to get many people just going, damn it, I'll pay your money, go to the doctors, I'll pay the doctor's bills, I'll pay the surgery, I'll do whatever you... When you're ready to come back, come back. Surely, what's the, general, what's the benefit of just waiting those two weeks? I mean... Well, it's, it's waiting for the claim to be assessed. So it's normally, for, hopefully, 48 hours where there's a decision. Um, the... The week or two weeks come into play when the claim gets transitioned to another team where the worker doesn't get any contact at all. So mm-hmm. there's nothing stopping the employer from making payment. Yeah. And generally, the medical expenses will be paid. Yeah. Um, once the claim is accepted, then the employer can go ahead and make the payment. But you've got to take into consideration what's tricky in all this is sometimes employers have cash flow, cash flow problems themselves. Mm. All right, and they don't know the system. They don't know what to pay, um, and especially if they're shift workers, um, and and their pay alters each week. Um, you know, it could, you know, it could delay delay things. Where yeah. I think where the gap is is that education piece to both worker and employer. It's too, um, it's too slow from the agent. And that's an interesting thing because it ta- in fairness to the agent, it takes a while to collect all the um, things that they need, for example, employment history, wage history, incident reports, so they can make a, a, an accurate assessment of A, what to pay you in compensation and B, um, whether they accept liability or not. So... What's actually involved in the calculation for wages, say the person is off for 10 days or more? Okay, it's, it's the 12 months prior to the date of injury is what um, the average earnings over those 12 months is what will be used to calculate the weekly compensation rate. And that is for the entirety of the claim, correct? That's right, until the Regardless. worker goes back to work. Regardless of whether it's one year, five year, ten year mark into the claim, correct? Yeah, Not it gets, claims last that long. Yeah, it gets indexed every year mm-hmm. that someone's on the system, but the, the base will be worked out on the on an average. So, 
let's say a good example is let's say a worker got injured on the 1st of June 2020 mm-hmm. and did not lodge, um, did not cease work till today. Yes. The calculation will be based on 12 months prior to the date of injury, which is in 2020. So in that scenario, the worker may be disadvantaged because they would have had, you would presume they would have had pay rises throughout. More than likely, depending on the type of role. That's right, yeah. So um, there's the incentive for coming back to work quickly. Yes. So, okay, so at what point does work cover start to reduce your benefits in in the claim? And at what scale? Yeah, the first step down period is 13 weeks. Mm-hmm. And that goes from, so you're entitled to 95% for the first 13 weeks. It then reduces after 13 weeks to 80%. So that's three months into the claim. So yes. regardless of where you are in, in the point, right, whether yep. you uh, lose your wages from an injury that happened two years ago, so A, you're going to get only 95% of what those wages were pre-claim. And then at 13 weeks, it's then going to reduce to 80%. So if let's round it up, right? So, um, and I'm assuming that's tax deductible, right? Yeah, it's prior to tax. Prior to tax. So just say for easy round figures, so say you were earning 100,000 as an average, First off, you go drop to ninety five thousand at thirteen weeks. You drop to eighty. Does it drop any further than eighty percent? Yeah. Well, point. Um, the the next drop down period is at the fifty two week mark. Now, so two years in. No, one year in fifty two weeks. Oh, fifty two weeks. Sorry, yeah. my apologies. Math is That's bad. Right. Um, <laughs> now this will be dependent on whether um, overtime and shift allowance was included in the pre-injury average weekly earnings. So someone who works regular overtime and shift allowance. Yes. That would be taken into consideration when calculating the pre-injury average weekly earnings. Okay. So, so that's at week one. Yep. Yeah, so those that, that workers who have um, overtime and shift allowance calculated in their pre-injury average weekly earnings will get a step down at 52 weeks. Now, if you don't, if overtime and shift allowance isn't used to calculate your pre-injury average weekly earnings, there is no step down at 52 weeks. Okay, so say that overtime and shift allowance made up another 10% of their wages or even, heaven forbid, 15% of their original wages, which is quite a likely scenario, they have now dropped down uh, to 65% if my calculations are correct. Yeah, potentially, yeah. Right, okay. So how many people can actually afford to live on 65% of their wages to drop from, say, 100K to 65,000K? I know tax is relative, right? So real earnings might be somewhere closer to... Um, instead of a hundred k with tax out of it, say, you know, seventy thousand dropping down to say maybe fifty five thousand. Yeah, um, you know, each scenario is going to obviously be different depending on the yes. financial situation of the worker, but it is a rather 
um, big shift on what you're getting used to. You know, we hope that workers are rehabilitated way before the 52-week mark. So, you know, they're not in that predicament because, you know, we're, we're focusing tonight on financial um, benefits. You know, what we haven't touched on is that the, um, you know, the workers' well-being in all this. So a worker that's, say, been off work for 52 weeks, which is going to be my next question, and I'm sure Chris is chomping at the bit for that, <laughs> what would be that person's likely mental state to be being removed from their social network because work plays a huge part in our lives. You know, it's a third of our lives. So being removed from your peers, your friends, and potentially your work family, what's that likely to do to someone after 52 weeks? Uh, And again, everyone is different, um, but definitely there'll be, you would expect that the um, anxiety will be kicking in by that stage. Um, and um, obviously mental health becomes a major issue. So to really avoid that situation, it's really important that the employer regularly communicates with the worker. But more importantly, and we, we don't focus on this as well, is the worker actually communicating with the employer and telling them how they're going. What we find is when there's a great relationship prior to injury and it continues throughout the injury, then the recovery period is a lot quicker. Where that communication breaks down, and it's evident, it is evident on claims, um, that's when you start to have mental um, injuries creeping into these physical claims. And, and when you think about it, it makes sense because, you know, people are withdrawn not only from their workplace but the community. Hmm. That's really interesting um, because, I mean, I, I have seen all types of length claims. So while Chris is not that familiar with, you know, those kind of claims or what that means, he certainly is familiar with, the types of conversation that happen in a workplace when you are trying to mitigate risk and manage risk. And I'm sure that in Chris's experience, he's seen some of that. Yeah, well, yeah, I have, and you're right. This is, uh, I look at more uh, the return to work phase when you look at what type of certificate that they've received to return to work, how long they're going to be out, and what processes through rehab that you would go through to try and get them to prevent them from going to a 52-week claim. Yeah, That's 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 where my skill is more situated in this area is we're looking at what sort of um, program can we put them on? Can we then instigate them back into the workforce by doing one or two days a week work where their injury isn't going to affect any productivity and where it's not going to affect them themselves and they can then get back into that social aspect of work and get back into feeling confident about themselves. So as a clinical physiologist, that's what we look at, probably not so much that cost, but there is a cost associated with it in that anyway. So we're driving that narrative there of getting them back to work as fast as an individual can be. And that that's great, Chris, and that's what we need to educate employers more on. So a smaller type of employer um, 
their thinking probably isn't as um, broad sometimes. You know, they're looking at their own backyard and saying, well, this person was a machinist, so I expect them to come back as a, as a machinist. Now, that's not always possible. Uh, and you need to be creative in how do we engage the worker to get them back to work at the same time being meaningful to the yes. employer. Absolutely. And, and that sort of, and it's that sort of um, application where people do want to take that on board and they come back shows the sort of standard that the company has. Like they're willing to bring them back. It shows that they're open to, to bringing workers back into the fold and, and multi-skilling and multi, multitasking. And most employees don't understand that if a, if a person is injured, they've got to be doing something at home that is literally of the same standard as long as it's not causing an exacerbation to that injury. Yeah. So if a person's sitting at home doing nothing or if they're sitting at home and trying to do something, well, then they can improve that injury by and help their recovery and their rehab by going to work because using the body and using the muscles in those sense help. And yet they're also doing that at home too. So it's, so whatever they're doing at home, they can probably be doing at work. You know what I mean? Like there is, yes. there's a trade-off in that space. They're not just sitting at home in bed doing nothing. And if they are, then then of course they can't come to work. But it's finding that motivation within the individual that wants to come back and finding them a task that builds confidence and builds productivity and builds them in a space where they can feel confident in it. And yeah, there not too many places do it, but uh, it's definitely a growing area. Yeah, reskilling is a thing. You know, not not a lot of employees are willing to reskill either. So there is sometimes the the on the flip side, there's sometimes the employee that is so stuck in their mindset, I can only come back to this role. Mm. And mm. after a while, they get fairly comfortable being at home. Well, the, the, this and this is a thing where I have difficulty. And when you're looking at the two the two organisations working together, if if you're if you if you can get up and walk, go to the bathroom, have a shower, and you're doing all the standard um, functional things that you're to do, then nine times out of ten you can generally go to work. And pretty sure nowadays we have such good open workplaces where people are on crutches, there's wheelchair access, there's everything that everyone can do. So when an able-bodied individual says they can't go to work because they've got a sprained ankle means that they actually don't want to go to work, not that they don't want to. So there's a difference <laughs> because you can like, you can have disabilities in any field now going in, reeling and keening to work. It generally then comes down to that individual. Just, no, I don't want to go in, you know. Yeah, we've got, we've got a perfect example of that, or I have a perfect example of that with one of our clients where the worker would not engage with the employer no matter how much the employer tried. So we had a return to work meeting and we offered him a position supervising because he had some really great skill, supervising some apprentices. Now, this individual was seen in the township walking around with no restriction. Mm. And your points well made, Chris, is you would think that if they're, they're moving at home. So to supervise to two apprentices without being on any tools, just watching what they're doing is is an easy function. Now, that yeah. worker refused and there's been um, – the insurer hasn't pursued that. So we've got a system that it focuses on return to work but does not support when – pe when people are not back to work, they don't use the legislation – um, 
to to promote return to work. Yeah. Because that to me is quite clear. The worker doesn't want to come back to work. There's an attitude problem there, or a behavioural issue, and that individual should should be dealt with within the system. Yeah. And in fairness, that was probably a poor relationship in the work environment pre-injury. Possibly, yes. But that's definitely something that neither maybe the employer didn't know either. Like the worker probably knew he didn't like his job, but, oh, great, I've had an injury, now I can have a bit of time off and not go. The, the employer may not have known that scenario, and this is where it's now all of a sudden come to the front, hasn't it, that he can try and hold on for as long as he possibly can to that point. Yeah. But I suppose from a personal perspective, and this is I don't understand that sort of mental behaviour anyway. I don't get why you want to go less and less and you've just shown there that you know if it goes on for too long you're going to get hardly any money and if you've got a normal standard of living that you're used to that's going to make it quite difficult so there's a lot that doesn't make sense in that sort of thing i think because the majority and i'll say the majority of people are driven by money and financial um, because there's implications right if you get injured and and you're sitting at home the first thing you do is worry about you know have you can you get paid so you can yeah. put food on the table for your family? Now, yeah. unfortunately, that takes over. And, you know, what we should be focusing on and what the workers should be focusing on is getting the right treatment so they can go back to work earlier. Yeah. And it's just a whole mindset change. Mm-hmm. So that that's really interesting. And, look, I've certainly seen all spectrums on that from a relatively minor injury to I'm not going back to work ever to I can't get back to work fast enough and I'm happy to re-injure myself so that I can um, put food on the table. So, you know, I've seen both sides of that coin. Um, What about someone who had a serious injury at work. So um, let's say their injury had long-term hospitalisation, permanent disability either in a wheelchair or, you know, mobility functionality. So what about those kind of people? Because obviously that illness is likely to take a lot more than 52 weeks. Yeah, so we need to really broaden the scale with with all injuries, but especially these type, is what about the impact to the family, all right? So the first thing that that I think about is, you know, we need to get counselling out to the family because all of a sudden you've got an injury that not only is impacting an individual, it's impacting a whole family. So is that covered by work cover? The counselling is, yes, for a certain part of it. Um, And that's really critical um, because their life has just been put upside down Immediately. Yes. All right. So, um, you know, the financial, the financial implication of the financial rules are the same. You can, you're entitled to impairment, potentially common law. But let's take the financial aspect out of it for a minute. Yeah, let's think take of, finance out. Yeah, let's think about the family. So all of a sudden you've got um, – and, and use my family as the example. So I'm – I'm a father of two, two beautiful girls and a wife. Now, if I was to have a really serious injury where I couldn't walk and I'm in a wheelchair, all of a sudden I can't do things around my house. All of a sudden people need to start looking after me because I'm no longer independent. And I struggle to go out because 
I need a vehicle where I can put a wheelchair in. Mm-hmm. There's all these other complications that sit with it. And right. how, how, how does work cover deal with those implications of you need to change your vehicle, you need additional care? So how much do they actually go, we'll cover this amount but not this? So how, how does that play out? There's rules around vehicles and modifications and what you need to do. And mm-hmm. really, I hope no one gets into that situation. So do we. Um, but when they do happen, yeah, there's rules and there's a process. And that doesn't happen overnight, all right? So when you've got an injured worker at that level of incapacity, it can, it can get rather frustrating because they're dependent on vehicles to get around and to be mobile. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these things to process them will take months. They won't be days. No, it won't. And um, it's also, you know, difficult to get mobility taxis, to go to doctor's appointments, to get around and do social outings. So all of this, all of this becomes very, very difficult for the family. So, you know, even if you take you as or me as an example, or even Chris, you know, um, how do we pay the mortgage when your income drops to 65000 How do we pay for the extra costs that are not covered by work cover? So, and obviously Centrelink doesn't close any gap either. So you're kind of screwed. Yeah, it's not, it wouldn't be a place that I would want to be. No, it's not a place where I would want to be. And speaking of places where I would want to be, quite often... Throughout my career, I have heard from workers, it doesn't matter if I get injured, work cover will look after me and my narrative is always that being dependent on a system makes life very difficult. And some people get it, other people don't. And I guess that kind of depends on the intelligence level of the person. The the people who are reasonable will actually understand once you explain to them and then there's still people that go, no, you're wrong, they'll look after me. Yeah. Oh, yes, work cover will look after you, but it is a frustrating process that takes a lot of time. Yes. Um, in, and, and I go back to people that are injured um, in the sense that where their mobility is impacted and they need aids to get around, um, that person would be suffering not only physical but definitely mental aspects and navigating through the system is not easy. It's very challenging and very draining because potentially you're dealing with different case managers throughout the days and the weeks and the months and you, you've got to rehash your story all the time. And someone who has an injury, that's the last thing they want to do is retell their story. Correct. I, I follow a very interesting person. His name's Woody. And he was in a motor vehicle accident at work and happened to end up in a wheelchair. He wrote a little booklet called 12 Reasons Why Not to Get Injured at Work. Very interesting book, and he also gives you very much along those 12 reasons of your life changes forever. 
your family circumstance so it's changed forever so you know for anyone who's listening look this bloke up his name's woody and he's very much uh a guest speaker around the safety circuit but he is the living example of what can go wrong in a workplace and how that can go um um how that can go terribly terribly wrong i've listened to many speakers during my years of my safety career and he would be one of the people that's quite impactful another one would be a um someone who worked for an employer doing high voltage lines and he happened to survive but you know listening to him um telling people as a guest speaker that for three days they left this man to die because that was the expectation. Very few people survived 22,000 volts through the body uh, without frying every organ internally and very interesting speakers about their journey through a serious injury and surviving. You know, for anyone who's ever listen to any of those talks remember the two miners that got stuck in in hobart they did the work cover circuit for a little while as well and they they opened up for work safe victoria probably about three years ago but listening to those two about the after effects the psychological effects more traumatizing than the injury in the first place yes yeah there's no doubt about that um because you're trying to get over an injury and be positive and all of a sudden you keep rehashing your story and fighting with the regulator to get what you what you need to, to get on with life. And look, quite often a lot of it results in marriage breakdowns over years yes. from a significant injury because, you know, partners just can't take it anymore. Yep, that's definitely uh, that's definitely high on the agenda because that does happen quite a lot. It happens more often than people think that a significant injury will cause a relationship breakdown, and you know, divorce under normal circumstances would be difficult enough, but to do it in that kind of environment following a serious injury would almost be you would be seen as such a bad person walking away from that. Yeah. So, you know, for those workers out there that actually think that work cover is the be-all and end-all, it's not. Um, Now, let's just look at the scenario of the family. Worst-case scenario, a fatality. What are they likely to expect to happen from the system? Okay, so from a, uh, again, from a benefit point of view, the spouse is entitled to a pension, and so are the um, siblings. So there's not a bulk payout? Uh, there is a lump sum, but there's a pension paid out to the siblings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the spouse gets the lump sum. Um, so, and there's funeral costs that are covered as part of that. Um, but yeah, imagine the, the trauma that's putting on the family. Oh, my God. I could not imagine. I have been extremely lucky in my career to have not had to deal with a fatality. And, you know, thank God for that. I could not imagine anything worse than having to confront a family and go, I'm sorry, your spouse is no longer coming home. 
Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's just the worst feeling, and and I haven't experienced that personally. But um, you know, hearing some stories about people, and then when they go through that process of of getting financial reward, um, it takes a long time because it goes through a court process. So again, you know, some of these claims take years to resolve. Um, and you're always repeating the same old story as to this is what's happened. Yes, and obviously life changes along the way. Um, you know, kids grow up without their parent. Yeah. You know, so they go through all this trauma. And, you know, I know of kids who have lost a parent not through work but through life, you know, and that's traumatic enough. To then have it happen through a workplace must be even worse. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely um, losing anyone is not not good at the best of times. Um, and when you're when you get the shock news of a potential fatality because you don't expect that to happen, it's quite raw. Mm. Do you know something? I recall once a a safety colleague, and I won't name what organisation or what industry, but uh, that person in particular, it made the news, the fact that there was a fatality on site. So obviously everyone would be starting to ring their spouses. And I remember that person retelling, they had the person's phone and it just kept ringing and ringing all day with them being unable to answer it because obviously police hadn't notified the family, et cetera, et cetera. And he said it was the worst experience of his life. So it's not just the worker, the family, but the workplace as well. Oh, yeah. And the people that are within that workplace, it's just as traumatising on them for something that possibly could have been avoided through not having the attitude or the culture of it's okay if I get injured because work cover will take care of me. I know that's a minority and, you know, it's it's a particular socio-economic person that may say that, you know, but there wouldn't be many people that would go, it's okay for me to get injured at work because it's just as traumatising on the workplace for even for a worker to lose their fingers in a guillotine. Yeah, of course. So, Chris, you haven't said anything for a while. Are you sure? Well, this is, it, you guys are sort of talking some really good stuff and it sort of slightly left the centre of my, you know, and I'm going to use the word expertise, um, <laughs> you, know, you know. But, um, yeah, I think everything that you guys talk about, for me, I think on all of this stuff, it's I work with a lot of people that are trying to get back to work. And so there's a lot of positiveness out of my set. And when anything goes over, let's say, 26, 27 weeks, most people that I deal with are, are really wanting to get back to work regardless of their injury or disability. That is a driving motivation behind them. And so I've only found a very few people that are the, that are the stubborn ones maybe that, that just want to try and drag it out as much as they can because, as Mark said, there's a, there's a personal cost both family and a lot of the people carry that burden with them. So during rehab training and 
that that's what they tend to talk about. They just want to go back to work and feel needed and wanted and feel that value within their society and within their family again. So, yeah, it's uh, um, my experience to what you guys talk about and the logistics is slightly different from from you guys. So, yeah, and I probably haven't contributed as, as much as I normally do, but it's been a very interesting conversation. But you know something, Chris? <clears throat> Those are the most inspirational people that you will ever come across. Mm. Because you you say to yourself, you have suffered this adversity in your life, this huge upheaval, and yet you've been over able to overcome that. You've been able to overcome the disabilities and not so much get on with life, but to take an attitude to say my life still continues and has not stopped because of an injury. So I've still got a lot to give to society rather than just stay at home in bed. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, um, you know, I think maybe from my experience anyway, it seems to be the... It's the lesser injury people go back, the more serious one, whether it's undoubted how long they're going to be off, are the ones that seem to motivate each individual to strive more to get back as soon as they can because they're unsure and they're not sure how the system's going to help them. They're not sure when their money's going to come in. They really try and do their rehab really well. They push to try and get back and do something. It seems to be those middle ground ones that, you know, people go, well, stuff it. I'll just stay at home. I don't worry about it. And I think really where the gap is, is the education piece at the start. And, you know, we should be explaining to to all injured workers what, one, what their entitlement is, but two, more than what their entitlement could be, but the impacts that it could have on them and their families and what to expect from the system. And I think if we do that better, it will change the mindset of people because people go from injury to finance, and I'm, I'm generalising here, but a lot of people do, rather than thinking about injury and recovery. Mm. Correct. So, yeah. And we have that the wrong way around. I agree with you, Mark. And the way to overcome that, totally agree with you, is education up front. Yes. Um, especially on the more significant injuries about what to expect, when to expect it, and what those uh, timelines are. For example, after 13 weeks, X will happen. After 52 weeks, X will happen. Now, I have found that even in large companies, if the return to work coordinator is not highly skilled, that those conversations are quite often missed or go wrong. And, again, this is where the experience of the insurance broker, insurance agent, you know, your role, Mark, plays such an important and vital role about educating even the large employers with all the resources to them to say this is the choices that you will have to make and present to your employee. Yeah. that's where you come in and your experience in terms of that because, quite frankly, you've seen just about everything. Uh, there'd be very little that you haven't seen over the years. You know, luckily, you haven't had to deal with fatality and the outcome of that. And look, realistically, work cover themselves would deal with that, not, not the insurance broker as such. 
Uh, at least that's what I would imagine. So, you know, therefore it kind of takes you out of that equation anyway, uh, unless there was something that the employer had a question on rather than the employee. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, but in my, in my prior life as a case manager, whilst I didn't know anyone that died or, or, at, or yeah, from a workplace accident, um, you know, you feel for the family and you look at the claim form and as soon as you see the colour of the claim form, because it's a little bit different. Oh, okay. I wasn't you, even aware of that. Yeah, you, go, you do go into a bit of shock. Mm. I just assume they're all the same colour. No, um, no, they're different. Right. Yeah. See, um, they goes to show that I've never had to deal with it. So, yeah. um, so what's the colour of the claim form, Red? Uh, it's a it's a purpley type of claim form, so right. it's not red red, but it's a purpley type. Yeah. Immediate recognition. Yeah, I don't know where where they got the colours from, but um, for me, when I see that, I think, wow, you know, here's yeah. another, you know, here's an unfortunate story, um, that impacts not only the individual but a lot of people around that individual. The sad fact is that um, you know. Every year, around 190 people lose their lives around Australia. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a, a, a very mm. sad fact. Yeah. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, that's, you know, different to the road toll. It's different to cancer. It's different to everything. This is someone who went to work in the morning and didn't return home at night. Yeah. yeah. And that's sad. That's sad for 190 families, um, 190 uh were injured or deceased workers, Work, and, yeah, and all their colleagues and friends. Yeah, it, it, it's a very, very sad statistic that it continues to happen, and sometimes not through the negligence of the workplace necessarily. Sometimes not through the negligence of the workers. It's just sometimes there's a shitty day at work, but usually I have found that those shitty days at work come out of poor planning. Yeah. You know, mm. and, and that's mm. a very somber way to finish this conversation, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, again, we should be focusing on promoting the health and well being of individuals and the recovery of individuals rather than, you know, talking about the significant consequences if, you know, if people get, have significant injuries potentially lose their life, um, you know, through a workplace accident? Look, personally for me, a good day at work is when everyone returns home at the end of the shift. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a brilliant day for me. And the ones that are unfortunate enough to have suffered an injury at work, I wish them nothing more than hopefully a first aid injury or something of minor consequence because anything more than that, I really feel for them and their family and how the system is not the easiest of systems to navigate around. No, definitely not. Yep. I like, I, I've been telling a lot of um, people that I work with that have got their injuries now and said all they've got to do is drive safe, arrive safe, work safe, get home safe. I like that we should Simple. we should market that, Chris. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it, Chris. <laughs> that's all they got to do, you know. It's a, you know, from the time you get in the car, drive, arrive, work, get home safe. Simple. 
I like that. So um, we should we should actually put that down as part of our slogan. Well, there you go. Something new. <laughs> something new. Uh, something for twenty twenty two. So. Mm. Um, I want to thank you again, Mark, for joining us and your insights into <clears throat> what a worker can expect yeah. in, sadly, the worst of circumstances yeah. rather than the best of circumstances. So I want to thank you for your insight and for joining us on, on this podcast. Anytime. Um, and we would love to explore more different type of things with you going forward not only from a work cover perspective, but you have such a wealth of knowledge just in the insurance game. It's mm. so, you know, public liability, all of those things, you have a wealth of knowledge in those, Mark. And yeah. we'd love to explore those things further with you down the track. Yeah, happy to be part of um, the podcast going forward. Excellent. Thank you, love Mark. Love that. Chris, stay safe. Mark, I will. stay safer. Yeah, you and, too, Silky. Uh, I will look forward to our next chat. Thank yeah, you very no, much, guys. Thank you. Have a good Thanks. week. Right. So you too. much. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.